Uh, with that said, jumping into Easter, we think about uh, Lauren and Janice's story, the encouragement, the strength of that, the life-transforming reality. Um, as I go back to Easter, just think Easter in general, I think back to the actual Easter Sunday, back up into that Thursday. Thursday to Sunday, as I think about that time when Jesus was arrested that Thursday to his death on Friday to his resurrection on Sunday, that time period had to be one of the darkest periods of Christian history. I mean, it was darkness like I don't think any of us can really get our heads and our hearts around on that, during that period for those that were close with Jesus. You think about it, um, and as I think about this, the cool reality is, as many of you know the quote, you may have even posted this on Facebook or Twitter at some point, uh, you know, when it is the darkest, the stars shine brightest. God had a plan, yet the reality is those that were following Jesus were living in the midst of some real pain. I think of the night starts out when they gather in the upper room. Uh, many, of you, many of you know the story. Jesus gets together with his close friends and his disciples, and they're there, and they've invested in, uh, Jesus invested in them. And he says to them, one of you tonight is going to betray me. Now, have any of you ever walked through betrayal? That is deep and dark and painful. It's how the night starts out. Jesus then begins to talk of his leaving and departure from the earth. And these guys that are sitting around that table have given everything for this mission that Jesus called them to. And they're confused and they're like, what do you mean? I've sold my business for you. You're leaving? And there's, there's fear. There's, they're scared. They don't know what to do. Then you move out into the garden. They leave that that dinner table, they head out into a garden, and these guards show up and arrest Jesus. As they move towards that court, the the illegal trial even, it wasn't even legal by the Jewish law, and they, Peter, who is supposedly the rock, he's the spokesperson for the group, he is the outspoken, passionate Peter, denies Jesus three times. You then see Jesus hung on a cross. You see him laid in a tomb. And the, the matter of fact, not only is he on the cross, the sky goes dark. There's an eclipse that lasts for three hours. Darkness settles in. And you have to begin to wonder if they're beginning to think, man, is this going to even last? Is the difference that Jesus made for the last three years going to go beyond this point in history? Now, the reality is here we sit 2,000 years later, and we understand secular And Christian historians alike will tell you, Jesus, the impact that Jesus has made on our world is unparalleled to any other human historical figure. Unparalleled. It's just absolutely mind-blowing the things that have happened since he resurrected. As I think about what shifts the darkness to the light, one of the things that I, the story that we're going to look at, the Easter story this morning, darkness changes as Jesus comes forth from life, and personally and uniquely approaches his people. It's a beautiful story. It's the Easter message. This message, think about this message. This is the cool thing about the message of Easter, the gospel, the message of Jesus. It addresses all of our hopes in this room. It addresses all of our fears. It addresses the things that we live for, no matter how old you are, no matter the culture that you've come from, no matter the day and age in which you live, this message has transcended all cultures. This message has transcended all history. This message transcends all language barrier. This is one of the rare messages that I'm aware of 
that transcends like, like it does. It's a singular message. Think about this. It is a clear singular message. And the message is you can't get to God on your own. You cannot do it. You have a problem and it's called sin. Every single one of you, me included, we can't do it. We can't fix ourselves. So God sent his son, Jesus Christ, And Jesus' message is in John 14, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's a singular message. It is transcended throughout all of time and all culture, all language barriers. Yet, here's the beauty. It's not a simple message. It's not simple at all. It's very complex. And do you know why? You look at the people around you. Tell them, you're not simple. Right? We're not simple people. We're all on a journey. We all have hopes and fears and dreams and heartaches and ups and downs and pain. And we're not simple. But this message, this singular message steps into us no matter where we're at. And the thing I find so beautiful is Jesus approaches all of us uniquely. Yes, with that very clear central message. But I find as we're going to look in the Easter story, as he approaches Mary Magdalene, who was a character we're going to meet, And he approaches his disciples, and he approaches a guy named Thomas. He does it uniquely each time, never with the same sales pitch, never with the same, it just steps in with what they need. It's a beautiful thing. Turn with me, if you will, to that story. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. It's page 901 in the Bibles there in the seats in front of you. I'd throw this out. If you do not have a Bible, take that one home with with you. Our gift from us to you, we'll simply put another one in there for the person who will be here next week. John chapter 20, I've asked Jonathan Meyer, who wasn't on stage singing this morning, but he is one of our worship leaders. I've asked him, what I want to do is just read this story straight through. This is the resurrection story, the Easter story. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 29. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrapping lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that had said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, If you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, said Jesus. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, 
which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand, hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers, finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. Powerful story. Now, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to work through this verse by verse and unpack everything we can unpack of out of this chapter. We'll be, we'd be here for a long time. I want to capture just this one central thought, and that's this kind of this picture of Jesus uniquely approaching his people after the darkness is beginning to lift. and He's shining his light in there. First thing I want to point out is you see right away there in verse 9, it says, For until this time they hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. I find that verse so comical. Um, Just the reality is this. They knew. Jesus told them. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. That's Mark chapter 8, verse 31. If you want to maybe this week look at some others, Mark chapter 9, verse 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 31, and Mark chapter 10, verse 34. All clearly he makes this statement to his his disciples, I must die. Now, this was said so often and so regularly that Jesus' own enemies picked it up. The Jewish leaders and the religious law that wanted Jesus annihilated, just wiped out, says this, Matthew chapter 27, uh, verse 62 to 64, the next day on the Sabbath, the leading, this is again part of the Easter story, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, sir, We remember what the deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Those that were on the outside heard this and understood But here you have those close to Jesus hearing that, hey, I've got to die, and in three days I will rise. And they themselves didn't grasp it until they see it for themselves. You know, one of the things I've, as I think about that, I even think about Mary uh, Magdalene, we're going to talk about in a minute, believing in Jesus does not come natural. 
Cannot say this enough. His death, burial, and resurrection and, and his, the life-giving power that he offers is not a natural thing. The reason is, is because inside all of us is a thing that I would call spiritual blindness. Now, that's offensive to some and it's hard for us to swallow uh, because, see, most of us think, well, you know what? I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can make it. I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman, and if I work hard and push hard enough, I will do it. And the Bible says, no, you can't. Matter of fact, the scriptures, um, Jesus tells a story of two people coming into a service like this, a church service. Two people, one kind of probably sits up front, and as he sits down, he's, he's described to be a religious leader. He looks around, and he sees some other people that, ah, he says, boy, as he begins to pray. And he begins to say, God, as he's looking around, I'm glad I'm not like them. God, you know what? He begins to talk about all his moral accomplishments and what he has done and kind of patting himself on the back, basically holding it out to God and say, God, look how much I love you at all that I've done. There's another guy Jesus describes who's in the story. He comes in. He's probably sitting probably maybe, maybe in the back corner over there somewhere, and he, he comes in and he sits down. And all it records him to have said is he beats his chest as he looks at heaven, and his prayer is a very simple prayer. Do you know what it is? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says very profoundly, it is that man, it is that man who found acceptance with God. We are spiritually blind. And we all the times don't realize it. It's kind of like a judge, a judge that um, maybe he has a case come to him and he, he opens up the case to kind of look at his caseload. And here he sees this case of a company that has some, has some uh, it looks like this company is going to go down. And as he begins to look at the company, it's a big company, he realizes much of his retirement is invested in this company. Now, what does that judge need to do? He needs to recuse himself from the case. Can he really make a fair-minded, clear-headed decision on that case when so much of his own personal worth is invested in it? Most of us would say, no way. But for some reason, we don't see that in ourselves. We have so much of ourselves vested in this thing called life. And Jesus says, recuse yourself. Step back. Doubt your doubts. <laughs> Ask the hard questions. Allow the scriptures to speak in. Allow God to talk. And this thing called faith in Jesus doesn't always come naturally. Now, Mary, I would build on this. Mary, who we're going to meet here in the passage, Mary would never have found Jesus unless Jesus was looking for her. Think about this. He walks, she, he walks, she walks right into him. But it's Jesus who is seeking her. That's why, again, I want to stress this message. This is the message of Easter. The message of, is a message of grace. She doesn't earn it. What does she do? She hears her name. Isn't that cool? It's personal. She simply hears Jesus call her name because Jesus knows her. Jesus knows you. Think of this uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City that I respect a lot, uh, says it this way. This is a commentary that he's talking about from John chapter 20. He's speaking about Mary here. He says, real faith is always personal. If you only believe that Jesus died to forgive people in general of their sins, but don't believe that Jesus died for you, you aren't taking hold of Jesus by faith. You haven't heard him call you by name. Do you know he knows you? He created you, he loves you, he's for you. He's not made a mistake. He knew you before you were born. He knew you in your mother's womb. He knows how many hairs are on your head. 
He knows the thoughts that you think, the fears that you have, the hopes and dreams that you dream out and want to live out. And he's calling you by name. Now think about saving faith. Is it enough to simply acknowledge Jesus is God? Is it enough to simply acknowledge that Jesus is God and the facts of that he died and rose again? Does that get you into this personal relationship? I want to challenge this. James chapter 2, verse 19, the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine that, being a half-brother of Jesus? <laughs> James writes and says, listen, even the demons believe and they shudder. They believe Jesus is God. The demons know who Jesus is. The demons clearly understand the facts. And they even shake with fear more than what most of us do in our response to Jesus. But yet they're not saved. What's the difference? It's personal. It's trust. It's taking the step of saying, God, it's what you heard Lauren talk about beautifully. It's surrender. It's saying, God, I'm bringing all my hopes and all my fears and everything that I am, and I'm trusting you. I'm putting my faith of who I am in you because because you've called my name. I'm responding to you. That's what Mary's doing. I love it. She walks out, and Jesus approaches her. Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And then he calls her out by name. And Think about this, too, with Mary. I love this. Why Mary? All four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four writers record Mary as the first person that Jesus approached outside of the tomb. Why Mary? Now, the reason we may not ask the question I'm asking in our Western world is because we don't understand the first century. If you want, if this story was made, this is one of the greatest evidences, in my opinion, this is legit stuff. If this story was made up, if these disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, got together to try and co- collaborate some kind of false story that they could hope goes on for thousands of years, they would not have picked a woman for Jesus to approach. In the first century, a woman's testimony was inadmissible as, as for witness in a court, in a, in a court of law. Women were unreliable and inadmissible. Now, in our Western world, we're like, what? I mean, we've come a long way from that. But in the first century, Jewish law, women, sorry, can't hear from you, we can't trust you, can't rely on you. So why would Jesus show up? This is the first Christian, the first witness, if you will, of Jesus Christ to a woman. Now, we don't know a lot about Mary either. The the one thing we do know for sure is Mark chapter 16, verse 9, records that she was a woman that Jesus, uh, years earlier, cast seven demons out of. So the one thing we do know is she found incredible freedom and life in Jesus' ministry and his grace and his mercy. And she, because of that life and that freedom, she was clearly given to his message and, and the hope that he brought. Now, as I think about this, about Mary, this whole why Mary, I think what Jesus, one of the things that he's saying, he could not be any clearer with it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It's not based on your pedigree, your moral attainment, your raw talent, or your level of effort, your track record, your strengths, or your weaknesses. Jesus says, I'm calling your name. It's grace. I'm approaching you. It's personal. Trust me. I love it. He could have approached anyone out of that grave. He could have approached Peter or John. He picks Mary. I love it. 
Now, what does Mary do when she begins to recognize it's Jesus? Verse 17, she clings to him. Now, here's the hope for you and I with Jesus. What, what does Jesus say? Don't cling to me, Mary. Now, what Mary wasn't in that upper room to hear Jesus give this talk to his disciples, but he said to his disciples, I need to actually go back to my father because as it is right now, I'm restrained and restricted to this body. So if Jesus is here, he can't be over there. But when Jesus goes back to the Father, he says, I will send the Holy Spirit so that when Jesus is here now in me, he can be over there in you. So what he's saying is, don't cling to me, Mary, because I've got to go back so you can have me in an even more personal way than you have and know me now. I love the message. Now, here's the cool thing. Again, I made this statement. Jesus approaches us all uniquely. Here you're going to see it happen. So he approaches Mary. He look at he, kind of his approach. Look at his words. Dear woman, why are you crying? There's tenderness. There's, now he comes to his disciples. You see that there in verses 19 to 23. And he simply says to them, peace be with you. Now what I find interesting about this is it's different than he approaches Mary. Now as you think about Mary and you go back and look at Mary, I don't think, here these disciples are. They have the doors locked. They are scared. Mary, I don't think, was afraid. Mary was grieving. Mary didn't have fear wrapped up in her. She had grief. She was crying. She might have even been angry because when she talks to the angels, they're thinking he's the gardener. Where have you put him? I mean, he's like, come on, tell me where he is. So when he comes to the disciples, what do they need to hear? Peace. You know, throughout the scriptures, I find this, there are multiple names for God. I have, authors have written on this for years. God often, when he approaches like Abraham, when he approaches Moses, when he steps towards his people, he will often use his name that they need to hear the most. And I think here he steps towards his disciples, and what they need to hear is shalom, peace. It's okay. It's okay. I'm in control. Peace be with you. Now, as he steps towards them, he begins to, again, let them touch him. They feel, they touch, they're like, wow. And again, then he gives them these powerful messages to go. Now, eight days later, it says, so it would have been a Monday, Thomas is now with them. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas, over the years, has been called what? None of you know it. Doubting Thomas, right? I don't like that at all. I think that gives, cuts this guy short. I don't think he's doubting Thomas. I think here's why I struggle with this. I don't think Jesus' rebuke was so much about calling Thomas out as it was as giving hope for you and I. Let me get to that. Thomas needs evidence. Jesus gave it. Think about this. Again, approaching uniquely. Thomas was probably, probably, we, the text doesn't say, we don't know a lot about Thomas throughout the rest of the gospel writers, but Thomas was probably a rational, detailed, linear thinker. He needs to see evidence. Now, over the years, you say, no, wait a minute, doesn't, doesn't faith and fact, aren't they, or faith and science or supernatural and rational, aren't they separate things? I'd say no. Faith is not blind. I, mean, I think Jesus knows Thomas needs evidence, so he gives evidence. Here, I'd say it this way. Christian faith is much more than being rational. You cannot ration your way into heaven. It can't, it's much more than being rational, yet it is not less than rational. Faith is based on evidence, too. And there have been men like Lee Strobel, if you've ever read any of his works, that have given their lives to helping those of us who need evidence, 
to help us see Jesus. Matter of fact, verse 6, when Peter comes into the tomb, if you look back there, it says Peter looked, he saw, he noticed. In the Greek, depending on what translation you have, it uses one of those words. In the Greek, that word means to think, ponder, and process. So Peter steps in and he picks stuff up and he considers the evidence. He ponders it. He processes it. It leads to belief. Very interesting how it, but here, so here Thomas is. Thomas needs rational, thought, processed evidence. So Jesus gives it to him. And then here's why I don't like calling Thomas Doubting Thomas. Thomas, out of this whole story, makes the most profound statement of them all. Look at verse 28. I think Thomas is an all-in kind of guy. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Bang. There it is. He, out of all of them, just boldly declares, Jesus, you are God. I mean, just with strong emphasis. Then we have this famous line that why we look down at Thomas at times. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are, now here, you're in the scriptures. Right here they are. Blessed are, what's the word? Those who believe without seeing. That's you and me. Blessed are those. We don't see Jesus. No one in this room ever has. He lived a long time ago on this earth. So we don't have the opportunity to go and touch a wrist that has a hole in it or a scar in someone's side. We have the scriptures and we have testimonies of the saints that have gone before us for 2,000 years. We don't get to physically see, so how much more blessed are we, Jesus is saying, when they can put their faith and their trust in me without having touched and felt? I love that. So no matter where you are, no matter your hopes, your fears, what family you're from, the past that you've lived, the generation that you are in or from, whether you're a boomer or a millennial, no matter what country you've grown up in, what language you speak, how easily you grasp the supernatural, or whether you need evidence, and on and on the list can go. Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm for you, the message is singular, but I'm uniquely approaching you with it. What I believe with all my heart this morning, Jesus is calling your name. Are you listening? To those of you in this room that would say, you know what, Adam? I came with a friend this morning. I'm normally not in church. Welcome. Some of you may be sitting here saying, I'm really skeptical of the church. I watched a movie last night. It's rated R. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone. I watched it to get me ready for Easter of all things. You're going to think, well, you're sick when you hear what movie it was. The movie's called Spotlight. It's about the Catholic church and and the the atrocious things that were done and covered up uh, there in Boston and then uncovered in the world. So I know as I watch that, the gravity of that sit in on me of how ugly it is when the church abuses power, and some of you have been hurt by that. Some of you have looked into the church with skepticism. Some of you see a building and money, and that's all you see, and you think, Pfft, I don't know where you're at. Some of you made you here this morning because, you know what, it's what we do in Easter. That's cool. Glad you're here. Glad you picked us. No matter where you're at. I'd ask this, who are you looking for? If you died today, where would you spend eternity? Would God let you in? Would you walk with him? You know, the cool thing is, whether you're skeptic, whether you're struggling, whether you're hurting, whether you're, you're maybe where Lauren was a few years ago, whether you just got out of bed with someone last night who wasn't your spouse, and here you sit this morning, whether you're playing, whatever, wherever you're at, God says, I'm calling your name. It's personal. I'm for you. I know you. 
And the cool thing is, all you've got to do is say, I can't do it on my own. I'm a sinner. I can't fix this thing. And surrender and acknowledge that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He, trust him. Give, it, give your life to him. It's that simple. So I'd ask you to do that this morning. Just boldly say this morning, why not take that step? Now, I look out at this room, and you're not all in that position. Some of you are here. I know some of you. Some of you are going, man, we love Jesus, Adam. That's awesome. Continue to make sure he's living in you. Those of you who put your faith in him, continue to daily listen to him call your name. Listen to him approach you. Continue to constantly come back to that point of recognizing I am spiritually blind. It was God that initiated me, that stepped towards me. I didn't do this thing. I didn't come to life because of me. It's, I came to life and constantly come back to that point, constantly come back to the place of surrender and say, God, I trust you. And then listen to him call your name. Nurture that daily. Walk with him. Because again, he said, Mary, don't grasp me. I've got to go back so that I can go and be with my people. So again, let me pray for you. We're going to hear a song then. It gives you a time to reflect. It's a song singing about the powerful reality of how can it be that this is true. So let me pray for you and let's take this in and just ask again, have you heard Jesus call your name? And if you say, yes, I have, are you continuing to listen? God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for hope and new life and the reality that Jesus came not just to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. God, we love you. Thank you for the story of resurrection. Um, how you have approached Mary, someone grieving and hurting, and you speak her name, and you approach the disciples with peace. You give Thomas the opportunity to consider the evidence and to touch and to feel. God, we all come at you from different points in life with a different journey. God, I pray right now for those that are here that know they're far from you, that know um, they're not in a relationship with you, that know that, man, I'm, if I died, I don't know, I'm not really sure what. God, right now, would you, oh, God, I just plead, would they hear you calling their name? God, I'm not sure how they're wired, but maybe it's a burning inside of them that they they feel. Maybe it's a voice that they're hearing. Maybe it's a... Um, God, just would they know that you're calling their name and that you love them and that you're for them. And God, would they right now return the gaze to you, laying down the fact that they can't do it in their own, they're sinners, and putting their trust in your son, Jesus Christ. God, for those in this room that have walked in here saying, God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus. I'm in a relationship. God, would we continue to nurture that personal relationship, listening to you call our name daily? And God, would we never graduate beyond the fact that you stepped towards us, that you initiated with grace a relationship? God, Mary would have never found you if you weren't looking for her. The same is true for all of us. We would have never found you if you didn't step towards us. So God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. It's a marvelous, magnificent, powerful message that transforms our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.